Good morning, Florian. How are you? Can everyone hear me? Hi, Katarina. I can. How are you? Perfect. I was worried there. <laughs> well done, Claire. Um, I, Florian, I, uh, Dr. Chun Chia Chen, I invited you to speak, to come up here to the stage and join us. Um, if you accept the invite, we can, you know, we can, yeah, there you are. How are you today? Hi, yep, thank you. I just noticed that. <laughs> it's also Shane, right? He's in the audience. Oh, yeah, perfect. How are you? Good morning. Or, I don't know what time is it in your time zone. <laughs> Sorry for saying good morning. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we'll start in around six minutes. So um, yeah, thank you so much for coming. It's a great honor having you here. Oh, the whole group together. That's wonderful. Thank you. Pleasure. It's very nice to have you all here at Science Society. Um, I've been reading through your paper actually, and it's actually so, so cool. I'm looking forward to a lot of laser talk. <laughs> Everyone loves lasers. Absolutely. Matter wave lasers. That just makes it sound even cooler. <laughs> 
As I was reading through the paper, all I could think of is almost every single one of the best science fiction films I've ever seen. <laughs> You're talking about quantum effects and everything. It was just like, wow, this is so cool. Got a bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I'm looking forward to explaining some of it because I'm just a layman myself, just a, an enthusiastic, um, um, you know, listener and stuff. So, so I hope I'm going to be able to keep up as uh, as much as possible. But, but I'm very, very excited to to hear because there was a few things in it which I'll, I'll probably ask you later on. But, wow, such a such an honor. Thank you for being here. I have to keep flurrying on his toes. Have you all been having a good day so far? Yeah, pretty good. Actually, he's just in meetings most of the day. Oh, uh, is that is that fun or is that less fun? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd prefer to be in the lab. <laughs> like, you know, I've spoken like a true scientist, eh? Yeah. Yeah, but you've got to pay the bills. That's I think that's what Florian's also been working on all day. All day. So I'm back again, by the way. I think it's actually so cool that um, it sounds like we're all in totally different parts of the world at the moment, but we're able to all unite to talk about lasers doing quantum stuff with matter waves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where are you all? I mean, I'm here in Amsterdam and Shane too, that much I know. Well, I'm in Scotland and Katerina, she's in New York. Um, so mm -hmm. we're like this is, this is I, I love this I, I love that clubhouse is able to actually bring people all around the world together to talk, talk about science cool
Okay, um, I think we can <clears throat> we can start. And um, yeah, welcome everyone to the Science Society. We are very honored um, to um, have here a whole team of uh, guest speakers um, that will um, tell us about their really very cool, amazing <laughs> research <clears throat> that they published recently. So um, yeah, a special welcome. Um, and um, let me introduce you our guest speakers here to you so you know a little bit <clears throat> about them before we start. Um, so uh, I'll start with Florian, um, Dr. Florian Schreck um, is at the University of Amsterdam and he works on quantum sensors, simulators and computers based on ultra-cold strontium gases. Um, with the devices he creates, he exploits quantum properties to perform tasks that are out of reach for classical devices. And he <clears throat> did his undergrad studies at Constance, in Constance, Germany, and um, in Grenoble, France, at the ENS, he did his PhD. And then he went to do his postdoc uh, in Austin, in the US. And um, after that, he was a senior scientist in Innsbruck, Austria, and founded his own research group in 2008, which he later then moved to Amsterdam. Um, yeah, so welcome, Florian. <laughs> Thank you. And Thank you very much. I'll continue with uh, Dr. Chun Chia. I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, he was, he is the National Institute of Standards and Technology right now. But he, before he was a PhD student in Florian's group. group um, and currently he's working on the optical lattice clock experiments at NIST Boulder. And earlier, before that, he was working on the atom, cool, atom cooling and trapping experiment in Taiwan uh, for his master's thesis. So welcome. Thank you for coming. It's a great Thank you, honor. Katarina. Yeah. And um, Dr. Shane Bennett, he's also at the University of Amsterdam. He um, has been there since 2014 and he um, his work um, focuses um, on super radiant active optical clocks using the technology they developed to build up uh, their continuous wave BC machine and before that he worked on an atom interferometry for gravitation sensing and um, before that, he um, spent 10 years in Australia, where he was working on the development of lasers for remote sensing and aircraft self-defense. And um, yeah, during this work, he uh, also developed many of the early thulium fiber lasers. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you. It's such an honor having all of you here um, 
and you have such an incredibly interesting <laughs> job <laughs> that's amazing so um <clears throat> we usually start with a couple general questions so amy um if you want to uh, start the the general questions and then we go into your uh, research presentation thank you Okay, thank you, um, everybody. First of all, can I just say, I would like to have a separate room for every single one of your backgrounds, because even the background that you've all been working on is truly incredible. Um, but uh, we don't have time for that today. So first of all, I'd just like to ask you, um, each one at a time, please, um, however you want to do it. So when do you think was the first time at uh, any stage in your life that you found yourselves fascinated by science and that you saw this was going to be your path in life? What was it that first grabbed your attention with it? Should I start to answer? So um, for me, I mean, as long as I can think back, I was always uh, tinkering with stuff and building stuff. And I know that when I was in little school, there are these books in Germany called uh, Was ist was, which explain science and technology for children. And I was reading this, I was always getting these cold shivers over my back because it was so cool. And um, so, yeah, <laughs> I stayed just put on, on that, what, uh, what I really liked since, as far as I can remember. For me, it was, I guess, similar in a way in the sense that I just love to make toys and make make cool things and I guess I still see science or experimental physics as trying to build toys that nobody else has or new toys um, so yeah for me it's it's just having fun and uh, trying to do some something interesting yeah for, for me it goes a long bit little bit with like Shane. Uh, so I grew up in a furniture store. So I basically I just enjoy putting things together. And the experimental physics happened to be kind of the one that that you can combine like doing science at the same time <laughs> putting while well, like playing with like a, a Lego things and then put them together. So I, I, I think I would attribute that my interest starts early on when I was kind of kids growing up in furniture store. That is absolutely fantastic. Um, I absolutely love it that all three of you have the same beginnings of uh, just wanting to play with and create cool stuff. I mean, let's face it, that's what got us all interested in science at some point, right? We all thought what could happen with whatever. Um, that leads me to my next question for uh, all of you, please. And, and that is, what is it then that brought you all together collaborating to the paper that we're going to talk about today? Is there any story behind that? Yeah, perhaps. So um, our origin is uh, ultra-cold gases, uh, so atomic gases, which are cool to nano-Kelvin temperatures where all these quantum phenomena um, show up. And, uh, ultra-cold quantum gases, they were created the first time in 1995 by uh, Jilla and at MIT with rubidium and sodium atoms. And when I was working back in Innsbruck, an obvious next step was to go from these alkali elements to alkaline earth elements. They are a little bit 
more complicated, but also offer a few more options and possibilities. And we posed ourselves a challenge to, to make the, the first Bose-Einstein condensate of ultra-cold strontium. And after we had achieved this, it became clear to us that strontium offers new possibilities to solve an outstanding uh, challenge in the field of creating this continuous atom laser, continuous Bose-Einstein condensate. And um, yeah, that wasn't only clear to me, that became clear to, to you, Shane. Oh, you read our article in Australia and to Chinchia. And so we all got together and, and endeavored to make this happen. Yes, absolutely. Um, so for me, um, I'd, I'd spent a long time uh, building optical lasers and um, I was really looking for a new challenge and the idea of a, a continuous, well, nobody had actually done a continuous matter wave laser. So we, we were all used to the idea that you can make an optical laser pulsed or CW, but why couldn't you make a continuous matter wave laser? So um, I actually started actually doing a little bit of stuff on this in Australia and I was looking at rubidium and the the task seemed mm, <laughs> virtually impossible and then I read this paper from Florian's group at the time on uh, laser cooling to transparency and uh, I contacted Florian and uh, uh, shortly after I, I moved to Amsterdam because um, I think strontium was it proved, proved right. Strontium seemed to be the better better choice for how to go about doing this. Yeah, uh, I, I I also uh, I also uh, my my interest in strontium definitely also start from that paper Florian published in Innsbruck uh, back then. And uh, yeah, uh, I I was working like Shane. I was working on rubidium, so I I was familiar little bit with cooling and trapping atoms and strontium now there seems this chance where we can really do like this uh, cooling to degeneracy uh, in a continuous fashion from that paper so so I immediately trigger my interest uh, so I also kind of contact Florian looking for PhD positions in his group. That is absolutely fascinating. Uh, I just have one more cheeky question um, for all of you, and that's um, does it is it actually how does it feel when you all three of you with the the different backgrounds you've got comes together for a collaboration like this? Is it exciting and strange because you know you're bringing like one part of the puzzle right to the table, and the other two are bringing another part? Is that something that's both like exciting and uh, strange? Because of course you're working with people who you you don't know this stuff and they know the other stuff and is it difficult to connect the dots all together connect the pieces all together if that makes sense for me um i was just so excited that we had a team that was so um geared up to try to tackle this exciting challenge and so um yeah i um yeah, I, I came to Amsterdam and Ginger and Florian and Benjamin and uh, it was a it was a it was an exciting time. Florian had just moved to Amsterdam from Innsbruck, um, and um, yeah, different backgrounds. We're always from different backgrounds, and I think that's actually the strength. So Ginger's actually got this a 
strong electronics background. I, I was sort of a very strong optics background, and Florian's, of course, uh, uh, a legend in experimental atomic physics. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's what actually excited me, the, the, the idea that we, we do have quite, quite varied backgrounds. Yeah, it was quite natural for us to work together. I remember these first months or so, we were all uh, really excited just and, and planning how we would build our machine and uh, encountering difficulties in our, our uh, ideas and <laughs> finding new um, ideas how to do it a few days later. And we all just collaborated also with Benjamin uh, Pasquier. That was very exciting. And we, we started this whole project actually without funding. So uh, you really jumped into the cold water there, especially yeah, Chunchia and Shane. Yeah, uh, for me, yeah, the, as Florian said, that in the very beginning, our, our projects start without funding. But uh, certainly, for ourselves, we do have personal fellowships uh, to, 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 to be able to work on this project. And uh, I definitely enjoy in the very beginning phase when we're trying to just design things from scratch because you have to go a, a bit uh, different uh, from the standard experiment architecture to, to be able to implement this new idea. So uh, by then, I, I definitely impressed by <laughs> uh say for example like florian's uh, like uh, insights into how like experiment architecture should be impressed by shen's uh, uh very experienced uh, uh computer aided design that like he, he can uh put together this kind of uh mechanical parts uh in a computer just to give you some kind of grasp uh, idea of how the experiment should be so so definitely uh i just started my phd and i already impressed i uh, how much that i can i'm going to learn <laughs> in the next uh, few years yeah it's definitely very exciting was very exciting that's absolutely incredible um bringing some three exceptional minds together like yourselves. Um, thank you very much for answering my questions and we are very looking forward to your talk. I will um, mute now and I will give you the stage. Thank you, everybody. Okay, um, so I will give an overview about what we did. Um, I would have two options. I could show this PowerPoint slides or I can just do it all orally. You can tell me. If you don't tell me anything, I will just do it orally so that people who might not, uh, who are driving a car or something can also benefit from this clubhouse. Okay, so our paper is called Continuous Bose-Einstein Condensation. So let's start by unpacking the title. A Bose-Einstein condensate is, is a little bit like a laser, but it's made out of atoms, not photons. And continuous Bose-Einstein condensation, that means uh, that our laser is just switched on continuously. So let's first think a little bit about optical laser, normal optical lasers. So you have um, an electromagnetic wave, a beautiful mode um, that is occupied by many, many, many photons. And you might know that 
everything in physics, I mean, is a particle and a wave at the same time. So electromagnetic wave and photons, but also you have quantum mechanical matter waves describing atoms. And so what do these quantum mechanical matter waves tell you? Um, they just describe the probability distribution with which you will find a particle there. Uh, this is uh, just this meta wave absolute value squared gives you this probability distribution of you take the Fourier transform and that then absolute value squared gives you the probability distribution of the momentum with which this, uh, these, uh, an atom is flying around. You can, you know this a little bit perhaps from chemistry, the orbitals um, describing the distribution of electrons around a nucleus. These are these meta wave functions I'm talking about, but here just for electrons. Now you can write down such a meta wave function describing the position and motion of an uh, atom as well. Good. And let me give you another comparison between um, an atomic gas and light. Yeah. Um, if you take a look at a normal incandescent light bulb, then you have photons coming out, which fly in all directions with all kinds of colors. And that corresponds now to a thermal gas of atoms or molecules where these atoms fly in all kinds of directions with all kinds of velocities. And, um, and in a, an optical laser, you have one beautiful electromagnetic wave that is typically propagating that describes photons that have all the same frequency and that all propagate in the same direction. And that would be an, an atom laser, an atom laser beam, one propagating quantum mechanical wave that describes millions of atoms. And it would be really nice to have such a continuous atom laser for um, yeah, atom interferometry for precision measurements. I'll come to that later a little bit. Now, the first Bose-Einstein condensates, they were created in 1995, 20, over 25 years ago. And they work like, like pulsed lasers. So what do you need to do to create such a Bose-Einstein condensate? You need a very cold and dense cloud of gas. And um, to visualize our machines, think of a big vacuum chamber. At one end of the vacuum chamber, you have an oven into which we put, say, a piece of strontium. And then we heat this oven up to 500 degrees Celsius, where the strontium atoms sublimate and form a gas of individual atoms in the oven. And at the front end of the oven, we put a little tube. And if an atom by chance flies in the direction of this tube, it will escape the oven and uh, join an atomic beam traveling through the vacuum chamber. And these atoms, they are really, really fast. They travel with 500 meters per second velocity in average. Now to, to go to a Bose-Einstein condensate, you need to get really cold and um, really dense. Why do you, uh, I forgot to explain this. Why, why do we need to get really cold. Now the, the wavelength of meta waves that has to do with the velocity of the atoms. 
Um, if you if you get very very cold, you you don't know anymore, or <laughs> you know the velocity of your atoms better and better. It's getting closer and closer to zero velocity. And you might have heard of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Um, the delta x times delta p must be bigger than h bar. So if you know your velocity better and better because it's closer and closer to zero, you know um, delta x better and better. So delta um, delta p better and better. So delta x must be large. So if you know your velocity, you don't know anymore your position. And um, uh, simply put, if you cool your atoms to lower and lower temperatures, the waves describing these individual atoms grow larger and larger. And if the wavelengths becomes bigger than the average interparticle spacing, then these waves will start to synchronize with each other. And then you can have one big quantum mechanical matter wave that describes millions of atoms at the same time. And this is our Bose-Einstein condensate. Um, so our atom laser. And to, to get that, we need to cool our atoms to very low temperatures, nanokelvin or microkelvin temperatures. And we need also to make the gas quite dense so that the atoms, uh, atomic wave packets overlap with each other and synchronize with each other. So let's go back to our machine. So we have this vacuum chamber. The oven is sending out an atomic beam with uh, 500 meters per second velocity. How do we slow these atoms down? How do we bring them to microkelvin temperatures? We use laser cooling. We send a laser beam against our atomic beam and we tune the frequency of this laser such that the atoms can absorb photons from this laser beam. And every time an atom absorbs a photon, it obtains also the momentum of this photon and it will slow down. Yeah, and with every photon scattered, an atom will slow down a little bit more. It's a bit as if you had a big truck rushing towards you and your laser that's a, um, a cannon shooting out ping pong balls against this truck. And every time a ping pong ball hits the windshield of the truck, the truck slows down a little bit. And if you just hit the truck with tens of thousands of ping pong balls um, per second, it will eventually slow down. That's what we do with our atoms. So they slow down from 500 meters per second velocity to a few 10 meters per second velocity. And next, we use additional laser beams shining onto a central point in our vacuum chamber, coming in from six orthogonal directions, like um, shining onto the six faces of a cube. So we have three pairs of counter-propagating laser beams, all orthogonal to each other. And we make the frequencies of these laser beams by purpose a little bit lower than the transition frequency of our atom. So an atom that's standing still can't absorb much light from these laser beams. But an atom that moves against one of these laser beams will see the frequency of that laser beam Doppler shifted to a higher frequency. Now, since we by purpose made the frequency of the lasers lower than the atomic transition frequency, now the Doppler shift to higher frequencies brings 
this laser onto resonance with the atomic transition and the atom can scatter photons. And you know, this can only happen if the atom is moving against one of this laser beam. So the atom will slow down and in whatever which direction the atom moves, it will always absorb most photons from the laser beam against which it is propagating. We have six such laser beams. So there's always going to be a laser um, that will slow our atom down. In addition, we use a few tricks uh, exploiting uh, quadrupole magnetic field and polarization of our lasers and the internal structure of our atoms to also push the atoms into the center of our vacuum chamber. And like this, um, in strontium, we have two laser cooling transition. This first laser cooling transition, which happens to be blue, and it's a very broad 30 megahertz line with transition, we can cool to a millikelvin temperature. And then we have a, a really nice trick in strontium. We can switch over to another laser cooling transition, which is only a kilohertz, uh, 7.4 kilohertz wide. And the temperature and density that you can reach is related to the line widths of the atomic transition. So by switching now to the second laser cooling transition, we can further cool our atomic cloud from a millikelvin to a microkelvin. And that's already quite close to Bose-Einstein condensation. Now in traditional Bose-Einstein condensation machines, um, you then switch to yet another cooling method called evaporative cooling. So for that, you first um, levitate the atoms against gravity, for example, using a magnetic trap or something called an optical dipole trap, which is just an infrared laser beam that is focused onto the atoms. And um, yeah, uh, the atoms, they like to be where, they, where there is a lot of this infrared light, it polarizes the atoms just in a nice way uh, so that they like to be there. And so you have this levitated cloud of atoms and to cool further, um, you perform evaporative cooling. The hottest atoms, they uh, fly out of your trap and the remaining atoms, they collide by elastic collisions. They will thermalize to a lower temperature and um, be brought to a higher density. And eventually, after a few seconds of this process, the atoms are so cold and so dense that their quantum mechanical wave functions overlap. They all synchronize with each other. And you have one meta wave that describes millions of atoms. So this, this is just an atomic gas. Um, sitting essentially still in this trap in our vacuum chamber. That's a, a Bose-Einstein condensate. And now this Bose-Einstein condensate will not last very long. For example, I mean, the real ground state of our atoms, this is a chunk of metal. Whereas we have in the oven made a gas of atoms out of uh, this chunk of metal. But the atoms really, they strive to become again this chunk of atom. It's just the lowest energy state. And that can happen in chemical reactions in so-called three-body uh, collisions. So for, yeah, if three atoms encounter each other, two of the three atoms can form a molecule in the third atom, you need it as a collisional partner just to conserve energy momentum conservation. So it's kind of like a fire continuously burning away our Bose-Einstein condensate. So this is 
why Bose Einstein Conant said they, they just don't live very long. And a big goal in our research field since a long time was to make a Bose Einstein condensate that, that lives forever, to make this Bose Einstein condensation process continuous. It's kind of the same step as in optical lasers, where you went from pulsed lasers to continuous wave optical lasers within like th six months. For us, this took now like 27 years. Um, so what's the problem here? These cooling stages I described, this laser cooling stage and this evaporative cooling stage and so on, they're just not compatible with each other. Imagine you have a Bose-Einstein condensate. These atoms are essentially standing still. Um, if you expose these atoms to a little bit of your laser cooling light, then the atoms, they can absorb a photon from this laser cooling light. And then they get accelerated by the momentum of the photon. The atoms immediately have a velocity of a centimeter per second again. And, and that is then just a thermal atom, not a Bose-Einstein condensate anymore. So we have to be super careful about this laser cooling light. And we, yeah, in traditional experiments, this danger is just circumvented by executing these three laser cooling stages, the one on the blue broad line width transition, on the red narrow line width transition, and the evaporative cooling stage, by executing them one after the other in time. And um, in our new experiment, we circumvent problems by executing these laser cooling and you know, these, all these cooling stages one after the other in space at the same time. We just separate them enough from each other that we don't have problems. In addition, uh, we, we found some tricks with which we can do without this last cooling stage, this evaporative cooling stage, and we, we replaced it uh, by something else I'll come to. So our new experiment that works by, um, okay, so, to, to realize this, we really had to build a new machine. And this is uh, the machine on which Chinchia and Shane and also Benjamin Pasquier, we, we joined forces in 2014. And this new machine, um, yeah, it has just uh, several vacuum sections. The first one, of course, with this oven and this counter-propagating beam on the blue uh, transition to slow this fast atomic beam down from 500 meters to 50 meters per second velocity. This has to be done on this broad line with transition. Only this transition is able to scatter the millions of photons per second needed to, to make this huge velocity change in, in the short amount of time that takes a fast atom to fly through a machine of a, a reasonable size. But then we send these atoms onwards into a second section of our vacuum chamber where we do not use this blue light anymore, where we only use this uh, gentle red laser cooling light on this um, uh, seven kilohertz line with transition. We again capture our atoms and cool them down into a, a little cloud uh, of atoms and that brings us down to a few microkelvin temperatures, but not yet very high density. And the reason for that is that this initial laser cooling stage also has to lev levitate our atoms against gravity, and that 
that's quite difficult for it. So that only works if the laser beams are really strong and then we can't get low temperatures and low densities, uh, high densities. So we bring our atoms again into an optical dipole trap, but this time we make this um, really an elongated trap, more like a guide. So we push our atoms from this initially collected cloud of atoms into the guide where they fly for three and a half centimeters into a region of our machine that is uh, quite dark. And there we bring the atoms again very gently to a standstill and accumulate them. And then we need two more tricks. We need to increase our density slightly and that we do by um, just um, making the dipole trapping potential in a very small volume quite a bit bigger than outside of this volume. So in the end, these atoms, this atomic gas will uh, accumulate in this deeper part of our dipole trap. It's similar to the um, air at ocean level being denser than the air uh, on the top of Mount Everest. These atoms will just accumulate there, but because there are always collisions between our atoms, the temperature of our gas cloud will, will still be uh, low, as low as the laser cooled part of the cloud. And then the last trick is that we need to, of course, protect the uh, Bose-Einstein condensate from these laser cooling photons. And we do this by, now yeah, it's perhaps for experts, uh, light shifting, the, but, but we just shift the optically excited state of our laser cooling transition massively out of resonance with these photons. This is done by a so-called AC stark shift, just by shining yet another special laser beam onto this region in which we make this Bose-Einstein condensate. Yeah, and if we put all of this together, then, okay, our gas will just stream through all these cooling stages one after the other and accumulate in this final deep trap. And if it do everything correctly, a Bose-Einstein condensate forms. Now, what does this have to do again with an optical laser? I would like to compare uh, what we do here with what's going on in a continuous wave optical laser. Yeah, and uh, for that, let's let's just make a few Gedanken experiments. Um, what would you like to, yeah, if you want to make a continuous optical laser, how could you go about this? You could, for example, take an optical cavity, which is just like two mirrors standing opposite of each other, and you can fill one mode of this optical cavity with gazillions of photons. Yeah, they are just bouncing around between these two cavity mirrors. And to create an optical laser beam, you make one of these two mirrors a little bit transparent and out comes uh, a laser beam. And this is uh, how people, by the way, already created atom laser beams. Uh, yeah, so people created a Bose-Einstein condensate in a trap so that corresponds to our electromagnetic standing wave in the optical cavity, the photons bouncing forwards and backwards between the two mirrors. That's our Bose-Einstein condensate. And then uh, people made the trap a little bit leaky so that atoms can fall out of the trap and form an atom laser beam that's just falling downwards by gravity. One nice 
atom laser beam. But these lasers, um, the optical version and the atom version, which I just described, they don't, don't last very long. Yeah, at some point, all the photons or the atoms will be gone. And for an optical laser, people just put a gain medium into the cavity. And a gain medium that's active, that's optically excited, that's inverted. And then photons can be added to the standing wave by stimulated emission. And we do the same. Our Bose-Einstein condensate is surrounded by a thermal cloud of atoms that is at very, uh, very low temperature and very high density. I mean, um, the technical term is high phase space density. And then by so-called Bose-enhanced elastic collisions, we, we put more atoms into the BEC. Two atoms collide with each other, one atom goes into the BEC mode, and the other atom is just at higher energy and flies away and can be laser cooled and recycled. So this is our active lasing process that we have going on. And like this, we can make our laser last a little bit longer, but not indefinitely. At some point, the inversion will have ceased to exist, all, all the atoms will or, or the thermal gas of atoms around our BEC will be too hot or not dense enough. And to overcome this in an optical laser, you somehow pump your gain medium to keep the inversion alive. And for us, that means continuously putting new atoms into the thermal cloud of atoms around the Bose-Einstein condensate. And we need to do this very gently and cool these atoms while they are coming in so that they form this very dense and cold cloud of thermal atoms around the Bose-Einstein condensate. And this is what we did so far. So what we have is this lasing process going on. I mean, laser means uh, light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. So the word laser actually describes the process of making a laser uh, happen. And we did this process make happen now for atoms. If you translate one by one all these words in the acronym laser to the atomic equivalence, that what we did. Con continuous Bose-Einstein condensation. What we didn't yet do is uh, create a, a laser beam coming out of our um, Bose-Einstein condensate. So what's missing to make a nice atom laser beam is making our trap a little bit leaky such that atoms fall down by, uh, in the gravitational field of Earth and form an atom laser beam. And this is what we are working on right now. Okay, um, now you might want to know what this is good for. Yeah, just one example. Um, lasers, they are very nice for interferometry. You know this from, say, LIGO gravitational wave detection. They use continuous wave optical lasers to measure the distance difference between two arms of a Michelson interferometer. And we can build interferometers also using atom laser beams. And the difference with an optical laser is that atoms, in contrast to photons, they do have mass. So they couple to any kind of acceleration, for example, the gravitational field of Earth. So by building an atom interferometer, 
for example, based on an atom laser, you can very, very precisely measure accelerations. And yeah, and that is very useful for underground exploration, for inertial navigation, or also for the detection of very low frequency gravitational waves, infrasound gravitational waves. Okay, um, so yeah, that rounds up my story. So you you should you now know roughly what we did and um, we really exploited here the properties of the elements strontium to make this work. We have this blue broad line width transition combined with this narrow line width transition um, and our additional tricks like um, yeah, accumulating atoms in a tiny trap and light shifting uh, a state away, which all made all this work. Yeah, I think I'll leave it at that and uh, we are open for questions. Thank you so much, Florian, for this wonderful explanation. This was, um, yeah, this was really amazing um an amazing talk to understand this and um yeah i really appreciate um you going through <laughs> that for people like me <laughs> so yeah thank you and thank um, you i you please press your microphones if you have questions um so or write in the chat and i will read out uh questions there too from there too if anyone in the audience uh, doesn't feel comfortable coming up and speak please write your question in or comments into the chat and um, yeah and we'll go from there um, from from that um, my I can I can maybe start with a question to warm things up um, so with this um, with this cooling um, and um, the basically the trapping and cooling, in so so for everyday use, is this possible one day? Do you think this one day we will be possible to use this in um, in a setting that is you know not the university or. Um, because you said we could use that maybe for our sensors. Um, I imagine that probably um, military and other settings would be also interested in this if we could maybe use this in a more um, unregulated setting. So, so would, will that be possible one day or is it really, you need to really cool it down and keep it in this very, very controlled environment? Thank you. It's both, I would say. So if you look at the past, um, the history of laser cooling, there are already commercial products out there that employ laser cooling, not to quantum degeneracy, but to clouds of atoms, which are a few 10 microkelvin uh, cold. And this is precisely for commercial atom interferometers. Um, yeah. Um, so they, they just worked very hard uh, in, in to make all these laser systems that you need to cool the atoms very compact and very robust. And yeah, if you want, I can explain you, of course, a lot more about why this uh, atom interferometers are already today useful for society. 
yeah, yeah, thank yeah, of course. Um the Frank and me for sure would be interested. Before we go into detail, I also wanted to ask so now that our time measurements basically and our measurements become more and more accurate, how how does this also um, address the problem of information transfer that the synchronicity is more instant and uh, more accurate it does the does this development also contribute to that um, I heard I guess Pika mm -hmm. a while ago talking about this issue that um, there's always some slight change um, and you know time change and stems mm -hmm. and everything and in information transfer with you know the blockchain and become <laughs> more and more precise um, will that this technology also um, help in, in that field thank you <laughs> yeah uh, quite indirectly so the technology that we developed we are currently using it to develop a new type of optical clocks uh, and these uh, superating clocks, they can, of course, and be used uh, for anything that we use clocks nowadays. And, but this is quite far in the future. We currently, our telecommunication networks, they are just synchronized by GPS and normal microwave atomic clocks. And um, now going over and using optical clocks to synchronize these networks, um, yeah, that would bring new applications in reach. For example, underground sensing, you could, through a telecom network, compare two optic clocks in two different locations. And then if, say, a magma chamber of a volcano fills up under the place where one of these two atomic clocks stands in the gravitational field at the location of that clock will change and because of gravitational time dilation, the the clock will run slower and you can see this by your frequency comparison so this is a, this is um, an application of clocks where our technology could become useful um, uh, however there are much simpler applications which which come into range already if you just push uh, current telecommunication networks just to the level at which normal microwave clocks are for example terrestrial navigation or also just making all these um, telecom networks robust against uh, spoofing of GPS uh, satellite signals or, or solar flares. And yeah, we are working together with a telecom company, Eurofiber, on these kinds of questions. That's interesting. Um, I don't know if you ever watched one of these Wall Street um, history um, movies out there where there's always the race to be the fastest uh the first one like a few milliseconds are enough to get the data to many millions more than the competitors yeah exactly <laughs> and of reminded me of that that maybe they will boost this and put a lot of money i'm not sure how many millions yeah. they could gain but yeah it's very interesting yeah for these people, usually our technology is just too good. <laughs> the best optical clocks in the world, they are at the 10 to the minus 18 level. Yeah, that is one second off over the lifetime of the universe, or easily able to distinguish one centimeter of height difference just by gravitational time dilation in the gravitational field of Earth. 
So this is really extreme. Yeah, it is extreme. Well, that's um, very impressive. Um, yeah, it's so many ways we can measure now more accurately. It's very interesting. The recent the, um, development we had uh, last week, um, a guest speaker also from Germany, he uh, was talking about helium, measuring helium levels in the atmosphere and that he can see different spikes and um, at different, like during the morning and the afternoon and by that measure directly, probably directly fossil fuel burning at different times right. of the yeah, so we, we become more and more accurate in measuring in such a way that that's very interesting. But I want to open up the questions to Frank and Jamie and Gilbert. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much for answering my question. Oh, uh, thanks, uh, Katarina. Uh, 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 thanks, uh, Dr. Frank and the team. It's, it's really great honor to have you, uh, your, you here uh, pre uh, sharing your uh, this is such a you know uh, advanced research with us on, uh, on with our club. So just a I have a basic uh, 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 question to understand a, a little bit more. The uh, I missed a little bit at the beginning, but I uh, I did look up on the uh, you know uh, application of atomic uh, uh, atom laser that uh, due to its uh, I mean uh, apparently it's. Uh, a significant advantage is, uh, you know, uh, it's a uh, more precise and uh, being much, uh, 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 I mean, uh, than photon, right? So it's uh, uh, the wavelength is shorter. So there is so so so. I mean, as Katarina referred to this, uh, can, uh, you know, it's it's a revolution, right? It's uh, realized uh, just like the laser. Uh, has done so much to us, uh, to the society. So my quick question, uh, basic question is on the understanding of how how uh, the rationale of choosing this uh, particular atom that uh, uh, I do see this in the slides that uh, uh, since it's uh, uh, a little bit more sophisticated than the uh, alkali uh, one, uh, one uh, hydrogen-like uh, uh, atom. The, so what we're, Exactly in in, in your uh, several uh, cooling mechanism that actually use utilize this, maybe in the uh, the uh, uh, six directional uh, uh, trap, like preventing that uh, uh, the random the thermal uh, 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 escape. Uh, is 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 that one example where where this uh, a more sophisticated atom like is uh, uh, being uh, uh, taking advantage of? I'm I'm just trying to understand mm -hmm. the. Uh, uh, this, yes. this yeah, particular facts. Yeah, thank you. Yes, absolutely. So um, in the 80s and 90s, people worked with alkali atoms because they have only one valence electron. So one um, optical transition that you can use for laser cooling. And they happen to be at least in a um, spectral region that's very accessible to cheap diode laser systems. So that's what why people started with these alkali atoms. And and then um, in, in the nine, end of the 90s, people uh, started to explore um, other atoms because they offer more possibilities, all these uh, two electron atoms. And 
they don't only have a broad line with transition like these alkalis, but also a narrow line with or several actually narrow line with transition, which make them useful for for clocks. Yeah, you have millihertz line with transitions between two non-magnetic states. That's your reference for optical clocks, or you have kilohertz or hundreds of kilohertz transitions for we call it second stage laser cooling. So you can just laser cool so much better, and um, yeah perhaps you want to know why that is um it has to do with the doppler effect so you have a, a transition with a certain line width you can think of this one laser addressing such a transition it addresses uh, a certain velocity class of atoms a certain distribution of velocity classes and if the transition is very broad then you can talk to lots of different velocity classes at the same time because you cover a whole range of Doppler shifts. But if your transition is very narrow, it's like having a, a small little scalpel with which you can influence your velocity distribution in, instead of having, uh, I don't know, a, a huge sledgehammer or something like this to do it with. And therefore you can cool much better to lower temperatures and higher densities. And it's exactly right what you said. This is very relevant in this uh, in all these laser cooling stages that we do. Also the one with C6 uh, laser beams from all sides. I see. Yeah, thank you. So then uh, wouldn't it be better if uh, having even more sophisticated uh, like uh, uh, electron like structures, mm -hmm. configurations? Then strong. Uh, what's preventing that? It's it's uh, too messy to, to control. Or? Yeah, exactly. Then you. I mean, there was just the first indium magneto optical trap. Magneto optical trap is a technical term for this laser cooled uh, cloud with the six laser beams uh, shining onto the center of a trap. So there was the first indium magneto optical trap created just a few months back. Um, yeah, that is one direction in which our field is going since decades to ever more complicated objects that we want to laser cool from simple uh, alkalis to alkaline earths to you know, group three elements to molecules which have vibrational levels and yeah the problem is that if your atoms or molecules become more and more complicated you don't have simple atomic transitions where your laser excites an atom and after a little while, the atom makes a spontaneous emission of a photon and falls right back to the initial state from which you started. And you can just continue your excitation and a spontaneous emission cycle over and over. Um, if you have a molecule, it has lots of vibrational levels, for example, and it will fall down to any one of those. And instead of using just one laser frequency to cool, suddenly you need to build a system with five or more lasers uh, addressing all these different vibrational levels to which the molecule can decay back down to. But nowadays people can also laser cool simple molecules. I see, this is really uh, fascinating, thank you. Doctor, thank you so much for that talk. I actually really enjoyed that very, very much. Um, one of the things I loved when you were uh, giving your talk was describing <clears throat> the really clever way you kept, um, you said you wanted to like, fire out the, the atoms and then you wanted to slow them down so you fired another laser, then you wanted to speed them up again mm -hmm. so another laser. I thought like, um, um, 
plane and die, fire another laser at it, right? <laughs> I just love, I just love this. But my, my, my question, um, sorry if this is a little bit simplistic, but it fascinated me at the very beginning of your talk when you described um, slowing down the atoms uh, with the photons. Is that right? Mm-hmm. You said, yes, yeah? that's right. Um, yeah. So the part when you said uh, the atoms take on the momentum of the photon, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, if I'm understanding this correctly, is that like if you fire like the, the atom in one direction and you fire a photon in the opposite direction at quarter the speed that the atom's going, does that mean the atom will absorb that and then slow down by one quarter like that? Mm, no, I mean, every photon no. has a certain momentum. I mean, you can calculate it. It, it, it depends on the frequency of the photon. Yeah. And... Um... So it's just momentum conservation. The atom flies with a certain velocity in one direction. Then it happens to absorb a photon that's going in the opposite direction. Then the momentum of the atom will just be reduced um, after the absorption by the momentum that the photon initially had. I mean, the photon's gone afterwards, of course. You're left with an atom that's optically excited, but slower. And afterwards, your uh, the atom will of course make a spontaneous emission, emit a photon in a random direction, and that gives the atom uh, recoil kick, as we say, a momentum kick in the opposite direction into in which the photon was sent out. That's just Newton's third law. No, is um, yeah, momentum conservation. Um, yeah, and we do this over and over again, but our laser beam is oriented against the propagation direction of the atom. So the atom on absorption will always slow down. And then on emission, the photon spontaneously emitted will go in any random direction. And uh, the atom will of course be kicked in the opposite direction. But if you average over tens of thousands of these emitted photons, in total, the momentum of the atom doesn't change. It's only the absorption on which the atom slows down. Ah, right, okay, I think I see. And there's no way to control how the, or direct how the photon is ejected by the atom at all, as this is- Oh, no, there are. (laughs) We don't do this, but in principle, you can engineer the electromagnetic vacuum around the atom by putting cavities in there. And then you're coming into the direction of cavity-assisted laser cooling and so on. So there's a whole research branch Sub sub direction just on that. That is extremely cool. <laughs> um, the the other question I had for you there was um, I saw in the paper as well. You mentioned it here about this could be useful for detecting is it gravity extremely um, low gravitational waves. Um, I wondered like. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like, like, what would it mean to detect a gravitational wave, and uh, where where would you be kind of looking? Are we talking about the gravity of of something coming from space, mm-hmm. or is this like the Earth? Or, yeah, or, yeah, black hole mergers okay. or galaxies uh, swirling around each other. So you you know about the existing gravitational wave detectors, perhaps these are just uh, optical interferometers where you have a laser beam that is uh, on a beam splitter split into two directions that are orthogonal to each other. And then the laser beams propagate out by like four kilometers through um, evacuated tubes onto a mirror where the laser beams are back reflected, recombined at the beam splitter. And then you can see 
um, if the laser beam goes, so to say, is reflected or not on this beam splitter. And that measures the difference in the length between these two arms of the interferometer up to the wavelength. Mm. Okay, and if a gravitational wave from outer space travels through Earth, travels through this gravitational wave detector, then the space-time will be distorted, so the length of these interferometer arms will change, and you will see this as a change in your interference pattern. Yeah, that's what's happening today in the existing gravitational wave detectors. And that those gravitational wave detectors are sensitive to gravitational waves on, in the frequency range, you know, something like a few hertz to 100 hertz or something like this. So they are very good at seeing, say, the in spiral of two black holes that are merging with each other. But there are gravitational waves out there at any frequency that you can imagine. You know, there, there are extremely slow gravitational waves out there. We have uh, um, yeah, two supermassive black holes as they exist in, at the center of galaxies. If they are approaching during a galaxy merger and then swirling around each other very close, they also create gravitational waves. But this motion, the swirling motion of the two black holes around each other is now not in the frequency range of a few hertz, 200 hertz, as it is the case with stellar mass black holes. But it's on the timescale of like 10 minutes or so. And now you need an interferometer that is able to resolve these super slow 10 minute timescale changes in, in the length um, yeah, <laughs> distortions in space-time, length changes. And you know, there are several solutions on how one can measure this. One is to go into space, like the LISA project, have satellites um, that are millions, hundreds of, I don't know how much, millions of kilometers apart from each other, uh, so that they can, can measure this extremely slow uh, changes in, in gravitational waves. And another method is to do this on Earth, but um, using so-called atom interferometers. So the, we have colleagues which are thinking about using like a vertical tunnel going down to Earth, um, one kilometer long. I mean, these tunnels exist from old coal mines. So you don't have to build them again. You just you reuse one of these old coal mine uh, tunnels. And now you put a vacuum tube into this one kilometer deep hole and you put um, ultra cold atoms every few hundred meters along this tube and um, you use a, a trick which is called atom interferometry to measure essentially hmm, I mean you send also a laser beam vertically along this tube in a certain way and, and your atoms help you, so to say, to the, this laser beam is, is like a ruler. Yeah? It's a sine wave. And you can imagine that is like a ruler with tick marks on it. Yeah, And there are tricks with which you can use the atoms to read off which tooth of the ruler these atoms are at very, very precisely. And so you, you just measure this like five times every 200 meters along this uh, one kilometer deep tube using these atoms. And if there is a gravitational wave moving through, then the ruler will just slightly change. 
and the atoms can help you to read this out so you can you can very precisely measure how space-time contracts and expands with the slow gravitational wave moving through uh, Earth through this measurement device. And strontium atoms are extremely Gosh. well suited for that for some technical reasons. So, yeah. no, thank you for explaining that. That is truly incredible. Um, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for all the questions. Um, Sasirahim, you joined the stage. Oh, and Frank has another question. So, um, yeah, Sasirahim, do you have a question? And then Frank, maybe? Or Frank, just go ahead if Sasirahim doesn't have a question. Thank you. Yeah, no, I don't have a question just yet. Thank you so much. Um, yes. Um, uh, Dr. Schreiber, I'm also uh, wondering about the, uh, so uh, for these atom, atoms, they're also quantum particles, right? So they, uh, so from one of the uh, uh, Google's link that I'm reading that you can use use it to, for, uh, to, to uh, just like, you know, uh, the, Electron photons that we can do two slit uh, experiments, right? Right. Is that something that you're also interested in? Or? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly at the basis of an atom interferometer. So just like in an optical interferometer, you take a beam of atoms. Ideally, of course, an atom laser it gives you the best results. Um, and then you use a beam splitter to make it such that every atom moves at the same time along two different paths. And then you use a mirror for atoms to send these atoms inwards again so that they, each atom encounters itself, so to say again, because each atom is <laughs> going along both paths at the same time. And then you put another beam splitter there, which then reunites the atom with itself and sends it either to the left or to the right hand side of the beam splitter, both sides with a certain probability. And that's what you measure then. And what you get from that is a difference in the phase that the atoms accumulate when they go along the left path or along the right path. And if you want to know how this beam splitter operates, or you, you know such a beam splitter actually for optics. If you take a, a laser pointer and you send it against a CD, a CD has a grating on it, then you, you might know that you get several laser beams fly, flying out in different directions, not dif diffracted off of it. And we can do exactly the same with our atoms. And as a grating, we just use an infrared laser beam. It's a laser beam that the atoms don't absorb directly, but which imprints a phase shift on, on the atomic wave function. And so, yeah, you, you make a, a laser beam that's counter-reflected into itself, a standing wave laser beam that acts as a diffraction grating for our atomic wave function while, while it's propagating through. I see. I think this is a, a much more precise uh, interferometry. It's really something to look forward to. Yeah, so yeah, maybe yeah. 10 years, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a yeah. simple atom interferometers based on thermal atomic clouds do exist as commercial products. So, I see. Mm -hmm. 
And you, so, you, the best ones really work with ultra cold atoms because I mean, okay, let me give you a little bit an example of why you need this. So, uh, so for example, geologists, they want to know little G um, at a certain place on earth, how strong is gravity. And traditionally they do this with machines where you have also an evacuated tube with a, with a mirror in it. And, and you let this mirror just fall downwards in the field of gravity. And you have a little optical interferometer to measure the acceleration with which this mirror is falling downwards. Yes. And then you have a little kind of robot taking the mirror and pulling it up again, half a meter for the next drop. And then you accumulate data for a little while. So this is how the traditional commercial um, gravity uh, great, um, yeah, devices that measure gravity work. The problem is that because it's all mechanical, it cannot run very much. Yeah, you can make a few thousand or ten thousand of these falls, and then you have to service this whole mechanism. And now, in this new generation of machines, you replace this falling mirror by a little cloud of atoms that is free falling in this vacuum tube. And you put, yeah, and this needs to be a cloud of atoms that is very, very cold, because if you, you would use a cloud of atoms that is of um, room temperature, then the atoms would of course fly with hundreds of meters per second velocity. And as soon as you let this little gas cloud go and free fly in this vacuum chamber, the atoms would just move sideways out by the high thermal velocity and crash into the wall of your vacuum chamber and you couldn't do anything. But if you laser cool your atomic cloud first down to a few 10 microkelvin, then these atoms uh, have a very slow, like centimeter per second sideways velocity. And you can actually let your gas cloud just drop down in this half meter long vacuum tube. And then you observe just with an atom interferometer trick, how much the atoms are accelerated by the fall and these kinds of machines they they can be switched on forever there's nothing mechanical which would uh, go bad so with these machines you can measure at least as good as you can do with the best mechanical gravity measurement devices but they can just stay on forever and they are also that you don't need to calibrate them they are absolutely accurate they never drift I think this will be wonderful, wonderful. The uh, but the challenge here is a more uh, I was think imagine the engineering problem to encapsulate. I do remember recall that uh, hearing a podcast uh, saying uh, 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 explaining a team, a British team, or they 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 use some utilize something similar of, of what you described earlier. That um, uh, uh, is that the cloud uh, atoms, ultra cold atoms, mm -hmm. that they, they can do geo like a survey, you know, yes, uh, by is... having a di differential in, in, in Z direction. Yeah. That, uh, uh, yeah, I know what you are talking about. Apparently, they, they are able Birmingham to make colleagues, yeah. sensor. Yeah, they, they put two of the devices I, I told you about, uh, one on top of the other, and then they don't measure absolute gravity, they measure the difference in gravity at the lower position and the position one meter above. And if you do this, all the fluctuations of the absolute value of gravity that just goes away and you're just staying with the gravity gradient, which is much more stable. And then you measure the gravity gradient, for example, along a train track or something like this. And then you can reconstruct from this, the density distribution under the train track. And they were able to find old rainwater tubes and badger holes and so on under the British railways. <laughs>
yeah, I found that really cool. So quickly, uh, a, a, a question on the, uh, does the spin factor comes in uh, to con consideration anywhere that, uh, uh, or it's just like, uh, yeah. no, I'm, I'm lacking of the no, background you, knowledge. You can, I'm, so uh, so the, the nuclear and the uh, orbital. Yeah, yeah, you can exploit it for your advantage if you want to. Um, I mean, you don't need to necessarily for these machines, it also works without, but for, yeah, for, for some technical tricks, it's useful to have it. This is, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is a little bit too detailed. Um, yeah, you can also, you, I mean, so if you're speaking of the spin, you're talking about internal degrees of freedom of the atom, not anymore about the motion of the atom necessarily. Yeah? And yet now you can build interferometers in internal state space of the atom, which lets you read out super precisely the energy level difference between two of your levels of your atom. And now it depends which levels you choose. You could choose two levels that are magnetic. And then uh, if the magnetic field changes, the difference in energy between these levels might change and you can super precisely read this out. Yeah. And then you can uh, measure the tiny magnetic field changes that your brain uh, produces at the surface of your skull. And you just make hundreds of these little magnetic field sensors around uh, your skull based on little rubidium vapor cells. And then you can get an insight of what's going on in your brain, for example, or you use transitions that are not magnetic. Um, then, you can just hope that the frequency, the energy difference that you read out is super stable. And that's a very good foundation for a clock. Yeah. So I think spin is most useful or internal states most useful for these kinds of measurements, B field, electric field, time. I see. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. Thank you. Can I just yeah. quickly ask whether, oops, oh, no, sorry, no, go Katrina, ahead. please continue. Yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Um, sorry, um, I was just wondering um, if you could explain um, in your paper where I was having a look at it, you were talking about like quantum simulation. Um, could you explain to me um, exactly what that is, please? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, it's a way of uh, computing things that normal classical computers are having a very hard time to compute or even can't compute. Um, so, yeah, normal normal computers are based on classical physics, not quantum physics. And they they have trouble, for example, already just storing in their memory the complete quantum state of a system. Um, this is just because of, of superpositions, yeah. Um, so as, as soon as you have a system which has more than like 50 two-level atoms, 50 qubits, a classical computer will have a very hard time calculating what's going on or even storing the complete state of the wave function in its memory. Now, you can, you can also use a, a quantum system to simulate a, a quantum system of interest. So let's say you have a condensed matter system that you don't understand, a high temperature superconductor. How do the electrons move around there? You can guess how the 
how the equations describing the system look like. Yeah, so-called Hubbard Hamiltonian, for example. But you will not be able to solve these equations with a classical computer. It's just way too complicated. However, you are able to build other quantum systems over which you have nearly full control, which implement the same equations, the same yeah, Hamiltonian, as we say. And then you can look how this new quantum system behaves. So the, the quantum system with which you do it, with ultra-cold atoms, for example, has the advantage of being very controllable. You can control pretty much anything that you want and, and see how the system reacts. That would correspond in solid state physics to things like changing the charge of an electron, and you just can't do that. Yeah. And our advantages are, for example, that yeah, in, in these solid state quantum simulations, for us, each atom in our ultra-cold atom system represents one electron in a solid, for example, in a, in a superconductor. And in solid state physics, you just can't take a snapshot, a photograph of the position of each and every electron. Whereas we can easily, we can construct a special type of microscopy system with which we can make snapshots of the distribution of atoms in our system. So we can, can really see particle by particle what's going on in in our quantum system. And that's called yeah, quantum simulation. You replace a complicated quantum mechanical system that you just don't know how to study anymore and that classical computers are having a too hard time to, to describe by calculation. You replicate the essence of that system with something easily controllable, easily investigable, like our ultra-cold atoms. So that's quantum simulation. It's very much related, of course, also to quantum computing. And it's very much related to analog uh, computing. You know, the first classical computers that we had, they were not digital. They were analog, built like on, for example, electronic circuits, uh, and they were able to solve differential equations. So it's or yeah, it's kind of like this. Or building an orrery, like uh, to describe the motion of the planets around the sun using um, gears. Yeah, this is an analog computer. This is a little bit like like such a quantum simulation. Thank you very much. That's uh, that actually explains why that would be so helpful for you to observe what was going on there. Um, yeah, thank you very much for your time, Doctor. <laughs> All of you. Thank you, Katharina. Uh, the floor is yours. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we've been um, going now an hour and twenty minutes, so I imagine you probably <laughs> I exhausted the explaining things to us, but. Um, this was a really amazing talk and it was so um, insightful, you know, for us out of the field. I just use lasers, but I don't build them So <laughs> in the lab for imaging. But um, yeah, this is was an amazing opportunity to, um, yeah, to get to know your uh, work better in more detail and uh, your explanations were wonderful. So um we really appreciate it and um, feel free to always come back um, if you have maybe a project that you would like to share um, with us. Um, that would be wonderful. And yeah, 
Shane, go ahead. I see you are unmarked. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. It was fun. Uh, yeah, if I may, can I squeeze in a, a last question? Or... Uh, for me, it's fine. You know, like it's uh, Florian. Sure. Yeah. I... Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so um, just really, uh, just as well. I mean, just uh, salute you. I mean, the, this is the most fun frontier research, and uh, thanks uh, for you and. Uh, uh, your uh, colleagues, uh, you know, uh, come coming here and uh, teaching us the, all these. Uh, so cu curiosity. So for a engineer uh, with some coding and you know uh, uh, machine learning and uh, uh, hardware, uh, electrical and mechanical material science and knowledge. Uh, so from from that point of view, uh, I'm just trying to try to get a understanding of uh, the, the complexity of this project that you're building. Uh, I do see in in the end, you have a team, uh, a, a great team. Uh, how, how, how long does it take uh, for you to build this? Uh, 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 and when, when uh, starting from when uh, you, you had this uh, project proposal and also, so for the next step you mentioned, I, I do hear you mentioned that you, you're planning to uh, have a, uh, to get the laser uh, out, right? So uh, using some some transparent window or something. How, what do you? Uh, what's your estimate? How how long that would uh, take you to realize? Uh, I think that's a great question for Shane and Shinshir because uh, you are the ones who really built this machine. So, how long did it take? What and what are the next steps? How long do you think it will take? So we we started designing this machine in. Um start of 2014 um and we finally got our results on uh christmas morning of uh 2019 was uh where we finally managed to get it to working um so uh we had to it didn't work the first few times so we stripped it down and uh went back to just the vacuum chamber and rebuilt it a couple of times so it's hard to know how long these things take because um it's always a it's always a a story a meander or trying to trying to make something work and tackle the problems one at a time. Um, so how long will it take to get a, a, a an output output of beam from from this system? Again, it's it's hard to know. Maybe we can um, outcouple with uh, from the the steady state uh, or CWBEC. Um, and maybe that's possible within within a within a year or, or so, um, but I think there's that's certainly not the end of the story. I think there's uh, a lot of other steps. You would love to have a really high flux atom laser, uh, so lots and lots of atoms, really strong, powerful, and um, so I, I still imagine a, a, a slightly different architecture where it's um, continuously evaporating along a, along a guide uh, um, and yeah, um, producing something like that could, could take another five or 10 years to try to make that make something like that work. But to really get a, an atom laser where you can do atom inframetry um, really well, I, I think there's still lots of work to do. Ginger? Uh, yeah, for, as for the timeline, I, I personally, I, I 
wouldn't be super confident that what how much time it would take. But uh, as Shane mentioned, that even in this machine, in this project, we 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 have gone through multiple generation of like uh, experiment architecture. Definitely not really like what he said. Like we rip apart everything down to the vacuum. It's more like okay, we build new new capabilities uh, and we introduce new experiment setup to just trying to kind of uh, add in new new functions to the system and trying out whether that solved the problems that we encountered along the way so uh on 2019 uh, uh early morning christmas definitely we first first time make it working but before that we definitely have like three, four times of attempt trying to kind of achieve continuous both-sides and condensation. But the previous uh, uh, previous design or previous approach uh, doesn't work out. But we, we learn from those experiences or like learn now what make it not working. Uh, it's either the atoms are not cold enough, atom, atoms density or like atom number is not enough. And then we, we, we started from there, like how to introduce new 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 method to make the atoms colder uh, uh, how to figure how to increase the atom flux so 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 certainly now back to the question of how long it's going to take for for outcoupling the atoms from the continuous poisons and condensation to to become an atom laser continuous uh, atom laser I, I think definitely uh, there's going to be some like some exploration involved for sure like uh, and then, then you try to figure out say for example like how to outcouple the atoms forming the atom laser there are multiple methods that you can outcouple the atoms from from a trap and they need to be tried uh, and see which one eventually works better yeah another thing i would say is that it's sometimes maybe more about the journey than the actual getting there in some ways. So in the process of actually getting to this result, we also developed a whole bunch of other techniques and methods which have uh, now formed the basis of a whole bunch of new projects um, like the super radiant optical clocks and, uh, and also uh, Sisyphus cooling mechanisms, which is a, a, a maybe a, a, well, I'll let Ginger explain that one. That, that one's his... Uh, yeah so so what she mentioned is that along the way we developed multiple like experimental techniques which later can be applied to other research like research line uh, one example is that the one that florian and shen now work are working on like a super radiant clock and then you just need to have a kind of ultra cold atomic beam continuously loaded into a cavity, uh, a cavity for uh, basically just so so that basically the technology, the core technology itself, is basically share the similarity of what we are looking for in our continuous bosons and condensate experiment, an ultra cold high flux atomic beam. And that's what we exactly what we have uh, in 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 our uh, CWBC experiment. So that's why 
we we definitely we develop the technology and we see the opportunities that immediately we can apply we can build another machine and and then start another project basically and then build a, a super radiant clock using the technology that we developed yeah. well that's really uh I mean, thanks. Thanks for the sharing. It's, it's really quite a journey. I, I can see. I mean, the, the uh, 2019 Christmas must be. You know, I I, I could imagine how how jubilee. I mean, <laughs> the team must go out to celebrate. It's really a moment. Yeah, uh, congratulations. Yeah, but uh, now quickly. Um, so for the uh, uh, just curiosity, the when you say continuous, is in my mind. I mean the uh, the. Quanta, you know, is uh, seem to me is uh, is there a, uh, is is beyond some limit that you you can a threshold you you call it the continuum and say in some uh, like pertaining to particular application like like the clock or or is it really uh, in, in literally is continuous uh, like a, 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 a you know field you know with yeah just just uh, educational questions. Yeah. Um, so one one answer would be um, so it's a matter wave, and so in uh, traditional systems, the atoms are lost, and the matter wave dies, and that's it. That's it. There's no more matter wave. Whereas in our system, we're able to maintain this matter wave coherently forever, uh, in principle, as long as you keep the machine on. So all of that information, all of that um, coherence can in principle be preserved. And this is um, really important if you want to make uh, really precise measurements where you want to preserve that information and compare it with a, a much later time. So for producing really sensitive atom interferometers, for example. So I'm not sure if that answers the question. Um. Well, the so it's it's really a a the the entire cohere cohering like state be be uh, the BEC state is is what the but uh, uh well I, I guess uh, you know I just uh, uh read more and uh, try to understand so so some so somehow uh, for me continuous mathematically that's a that's a mathematical uh idealization right so I, that that's just the way my you know I'm, I'm might be you know not getting the true you know uh, picture that uh, you're uh, referring to yeah so the I mean isn't that the beyond say certain limits everything is uh, say plunk <laughs> I'm just you know uh, um, mentioning some some of my you know uh, difficulty of uh, understanding, but anyway. So I, yeah, thank you for for for, for that already. Florian, maybe you have a go. Oh, um, <laughs> um, I was not completely in the discussion. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I I can add something to this continuous, namely, why is it so useful? So current atom lasers. Um, are all pulsed and if you build a sensing device that works only sometimes not all the time you won't read out the correct measurement signal yeah for example if you want to measure acceleration on a boat 
and this boat is shaking in the waves and your sensor happens to have ultra cold atoms available only when the boat leans to the left and you measure only then, then you will have a completely shifted, distorted measurement output, namely the acceleration the boat has while it's leaning to the left and not what you want, the average acceleration averaged over all this wavy motion of the boat that you can only get if you have a continuous measurement. Yeah, and there are different ways of doing this. And one way would be to have just a continuous source of ultra cold atoms or atom lasers. I see. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just, uh, yeah, I should, uh... You, 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 I mean, you've been here for for long. That uh, just uh, quickly, is it programming skills, and machine learning, anything that uh, would be helpful to 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 this project at all, at this stage? So Shane and Shinji, how much programming did you need? Um, so <laughs> we uh, haven't really used machine learning on this, although. Um, I think there's a, a lot of interesting work which is uh, coming out about how people are using machine learning to optimize these rather complex machines. So there is a huge number of variables, a huge number of parameters which go into optimizing and running these machines. And so uh, a lot of uh, a technique which is becoming more common um, is the idea of actually just providing, just using machine learning to optimize the machines. And there have been some interesting, uh, unusual, maybe less intuitive uh, approaches which have come out of some of this um, optimization work. Um, so although we haven't actually used it um, in this particular work, uh, you could imagine there might be uh, applications where it would be very helpful. I see. Thank you. Uh, I see uh, Dr. Yang is, uh, uh, just came up uh, stage. Uh, do you have a question? Yeah, yeah hi, everyone. Um, thanks for a very good talk. Uh, um, I was our hearing about uh, gravity, um, but, it, but, I, but I can't access my phone and uh, close to my phone. Can you tell me again uh, how this uh, continuous uh, Boson Einstein condensation can help to measure study gravity. Should I answer it? Um, um, I think that. Yeah, do you have yeah. time still? No, I yeah, to but, uh, it's, <laughs> so I described to you the, uh, the devices that measure gravity uh, with cold atoms, with just small clouds of 30 micro, uh, Kelvin cold atoms. They are pulsed and yeah, the atoms are not all that cold. Um, all the difficulty, you, uh, some of the difficulties you have with these devices go away if you would get colder and denser. Um, for example, the size of the cloud gets smaller for a certain number of atoms if it's denser. And that means all these beam splitters that you have, they can be smaller and thereby flatter, so to say, and the quality goes up. Also, 
if you have an atom laser instead of just thermal atoms, it's the same advantage that you have if you build an optical interferometer with a laser instead of a thermal source of light. You just have coherence in, in your laser beam and you can measure more precisely. Um, so where do we need this? I mean, if you go to space and build an atom interferometer in space, then you can have free flight times that are tens of seconds long. And there it would be really valuable to get extremely cold atoms. And actually there are now atom interferometers on rockets and sounding rockets and even an experiment on the International Space Station using Bose-Einstein condensates and demonstrating these kinds of principles. Um, so there it would be really nice having an atom laser. Another thing is gravity interacts rather nicely with things with mass. So if you're going to use photons, you probably have to interact the photons with like a mirror or a beam splitter or something like that. Whereas with atoms, the gravity and the atoms interact directly. You can just measure the gravity's effect on the atoms. Um, when you talk about an atom, for example, uh, which atom you can use to measure? All of them. All and like most of common. They, they all they all interact with gravity. If that's what you mean. Yeah. Um, and by the way, there are big research efforts going on uh, where you have atom interferometers operating with two different chemical elements at the same time, and then you can investigate if um, the general theory, um, yeah, of relativity is correct and gravity really influences each object in exactly the same way. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks. Great. Um, thank you so much again, everyone, uh, for your time. Um, we really appreciate it. And we wish you all the best and all the grants for your work <laughs> and yeah um please come again anytime when you want to share something with us um and uh yeah we really appreciate you answering all our questions um in a very kind way so um that uh, that was really wonderful discussion and yeah i hope you enjoyed it too and thank you so much and thanks everyone in the audience for coming and asking uh, great questions. And um, yeah, I hope to hear you all soon again. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you for Pleasure. having us and for all your interest. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed thank the, you, the you words in your background, Katarina. <laughs> very yeah, relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are actually uh, the wonderful. Uh, it was a luck getting the spot on Rhode uh, Island and no point, uh, it's right by the water. Nice. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really yeah. beautiful. Have a nice... It was another hotel was horrible. We canceled, oh. like it was really horrible. And then we got on the same day, we got this but spontaneously and was the best thing that happened. So anyway, <laughs> thank you so much, everyone.
and uh, enjoy the, the rest of your day evening morning wherever you are thank you so much yeah <laughs> thanks enjoy Close. your holidays <laughs> thank, you. thank you thank you thanks for and chain thank you all of you for your time it's incredible work very exciting thank you okay three two one bye everyone bye everyone